Hey, everybody. Welcome. We're going to be talking about big tech stocks. Oh, sorry. Wrong show. <laughs> Welcome. We're here with Disrupt TV. Here with our awesome producer, L. I've got my awesome co-host today, Dion. And of course, Vala is on vacation this week. And so, so we'll start by doing quick intros of our guests. We're going to reverse order. We'll start with Linda. We'll go to TJ and we'll go to Mark. Uh, tell us quickly what you're talking about today and more importantly, where you're calling in from. So Linda, go ahead. I'm Linda Hill. I'm a professor at Harvard Business School and a partner at Paradox Strategies. I'm calling in from Brookline, Massachusetts. I'm going to be talking about how you build agile, innovative organizations. Welcome, welcome. So, all right, TJ. Hi, I'm TJ. I'm calling in from Singapore right now. Um, I am a CEO of Outpoint. I will be talking about digital transformation in the enterprise space and hybrid work. All right, the world of hybrid work, it's super hot these days. Mark. Yes, my name is Mark Rosekind. I'm the Chief Safety Innovation Officer at Zoops. We're a company building an autonomous mobility system. Uh, and we're gonna be focusing on safety innovation designed and built into autonomous vehicles. Well, that's awesome. We're going to kick off the show soon. I want to thank our sponsors, Robots and Pencils and IFS. You can follow them at Twitter at Robots and Pencils and at IFS. Uh, and more importantly, uh, check out what they do. So with that, let's kick off the show. All right. Three, two, one. Very, very cool. Hey, welcome, everybody, to Disrupt TV. I'm Ray Wong with Constellation Research, and with my co-host, Dion Hinchcliffe. Um, Dion, as you know, is our vice president and principal analyst. He covers a lot of range of topics, anything from CXO issues, CIO, the chief digital officer. He's an expert in the future of work. He even coined the term Enterprise 2.0. Uh, but more importantly, he's an analyst here at Constellation Research, and he spends a lot of time working on some of the world's largest and most disruptive digital transformation projects, and he brings that expertise to our clients and of course to us on the team so uh, with that you know we're going to jump in and diane we're going to jump in and uh, introduce our first guest um, which is mark Rosekind. so mark is a safety professional with more than 30 years of experience promoting innovation through science and leadership in complex environments um, this is everything from space to autonomous vehicles uh, he's a distinguished policy scholar in the department of health policy and management at johns hopkins go blue blue jays uh bloomberg school of public health and uh, prior to zooks he was actually appointed by president obama to be the 15th administrator of nitsa uh, national highway transit Highway Traffic Safety Administration, and serving from 2014 to 2017, he led a lot of transformation um, from proactive safety culture, uh, both at the agency and automobile industry to be future-oriented, really talking about what we're going to talk about next, really about Thomas Vehicles, uh, but more importantly, um, you know, um, Dr. Rosekind, Mark, you've been a I'd say a, a pillar in the safety world and a pillar in transportation and of course in innovation and science. So we want to welcome you here to our show today. And of course you can follow his company at Z-O-O-X. Welcome to the show, Mark. It is my pleasure. And I can't reinforce enough how much it is great to talk about safety in this particular environment. So thanks for doing that. Yeah, thanks, yeah. So, so Mark, uh, uh, welcome to the show. Um, and you know it's interesting. It, it, you would think that automotive safety is not necessarily the the sexiest topic, but what I find is really interesting is that we've gone from over the last fifty years where people used to buy uh, their cars based on how they looked and how they performed. You know how fast did they go? Uh, and you know, they used to hide cars in showrooms and, and unveil them, and it was and that was the biggest feature. And now when you look at how people buy cars, safety is perhaps the the, the largest discriminator, the key thing that people look for. They want to buy 
uh, safety more than any other feature in their car. So can you walk us through a little bit about how uh, we've gone from uh, a, a reactive view of, of safety to a more proactive view? Well, and I think, Dion, what you're highlighting is we are still in that transformation. And so I, I'm famous for this. I have to start 38,680 lives lost on U.S. roadways in 2020. That is 100 lives every day. Okay, 95% of all people that lose their lives in transportation, it happens on our roadways. And, you know, there are big questions like, how do we tolerate 100 lives a day? It should not cost your life to go to the store, to go to the doctor, right, to go to work, etc. It's just sort of amazing we accept that. And so to your question, that's really critical. For the last 100 years, safety in the auto industry has mostly been reactive. We just assume that people are going to get into crashes and then we try and figure out, well, could we have done something better? Could we make the car more solid so they'd survive? Could we make the emergency response a little better so they could survive? What we're trying to move to, especially with new technology, is a proactive safety approach that basically says, can we prevent that crash from happening in the first place? Mm -hmm. That's real prevention. And then if you need to, at least at Zoots, we have this prevent and protect. Let's prevent it in the first place. If something does happen, then how do we use new technology to protect you even more than what currently exists? But what you're describing is the transformation that's going on right now um, in the autonomous vehicle and, and auto industry. So proactive safety means uh, not ever having the accident to begin with. And there are some in this area who say our goal should be zero, that nobody loses their lives. If you think about it morally and otherwise, really, that should be, you know, like how many lives lost is sufficient? Well, zero. No one should lose their lives. Now, that doesn't mean we may not have serious injuries or crashes. Absolutely. But our goal could be and should be nobody loses their life on the roadways. That's real prevention. You know, it's a great point, right? And and you're looking specifically at where autonomous vehicles work, right? There's a whole ethics issue behind it. There's the robo taxi market that's behind that as well, right? We we think about you know where we are in the levels of autonomous vehicles, right? Where you know like basic automation to human directed to machine intervention to fully autonomous to humans optional, typically you know, five levels of AV that we typically talk about. Is there a different view on safety across those five areas uh, as, as you think about, you know, safety in terms of we get to each one of those levels? And then, of course, you know, I mean, what does that mean going forward? Right. In terms of like, you know, the design, like especially it all comes down to insurance. Right. I mean, like who, who's liable for all this? Like, is it the manufacturer's fault? Is it the, you know, the network's fault? Is it you for getting into the car? So, so I thought we'd jump in there before we talk about your awesome safety reports. Yeah, but actually, Ray, you just went to the heart of it right there. I mean, you just literally nailed it, okay? And there are two parts of it. The first part is what you were already saying, and that is there are five different levels, and at all the levels up through three, the human has some responsibility to either monitor the environment or the vehicle, which means the driving task. And so the human is clearly involved, and I think that's where, as you were just pointing out, we're going to have a lot of questions liability, legal responsibility, et cetera, is in all these levels where the human still has a role in the driving task. At levels four and five, now we're talking about the vehicle is responsible for not only monitoring the environment, but also the driving task fully. Uh, and Alex Roy just came out with something he calls uh, Roy's razor, which is how do you know you're up at level <laughs> four or five, right? Where you get yep. in the vehicle and sleep, okay? So that's level four, level five. At Zooks, we went right to that. And again, to your question, 
there are a lot of people that say, and we know we have the data from NHTSA, 94% of crashes are related to a human choice or error. We make the choice to speed, to drive drunk, right? To do something that's gonna cost a life on the roadway. And so people at level four and level five design are basically saying, let's get that human error out of the system. That's gonna get us closer to that zero that we talked about earlier. And so I think- by removing human choice, we actually reduce that risk is what you're saying right now. Absolutely. And I wow, mean, you've seen that's the be data. Huge fundamental. That's a huge fun philosophical shift, right? Because I, I believe I'm going to do better than the machine. Like that's, that's the bet I take every day. <laughs> so. so now you have us on another path, which is what's it going to take to trust the technology? Because we all think we're the best driver in the world. You know, of it's course. the other one. It's the other guy, <laughs> the other person that's going to be it's, the challenge. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and yet the data are so clear. In fact, you know, the, from the most recent past year, we actually have fewer miles on the road, more, more people, accidents. that's exact, more crashes happening. Speeding. Seatbelts, you drunk. saw the seatbelt data, right? Wasn't you that got crazy? It. So. It, well, and it's, it ends up in the United States today, 91% of people wear their seatbelts. In crashes where somebody dies, half the people are not wearing their seatbelts. That's a choice. Now that doesn't cause a crash, but it could cause you losing your life, right? And I, I tell people, it's like, it's the simplest thing you can do for safety is just make sure you're wearing your seatbelt, whether that's in a car, an airplane, wherever it is. But yeah, it's just, you know, you take some of those human decisions and choices out of the loop and we have the potential for greater safety on our roads. So Mark, walk us through that because if, if it's the human factors, if it's not putting on your seatbelt is, is causing so many fatalities, uh, what kind of safety innovations are, are gonna make that possible? I, I know that, that you guys have worked on a, uh, a new safety report, uh, and it has a, a, a whopping 100 new safety innovations. Will 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 they make uh you know make us put on our seatbelt some way, or they do it for us? Uh, can you walk us through your report and tell us about some of these safety innovations? Yeah, thank you for that. Because starting with my title at Zooks is actually Chief Safety Innovation Officer. Yep. I'm the only one in the world. With, in fact, when somebody says Chief Safety Officer, I correct them, and I say that because our emphasis is on exactly what you're talking about. What, how can and where can we do safety innovations just like all the cool stuff that we're doing in technology innovations? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so specifically, we just, we're one of the few companies that are building a vehicle from the ground up for autonomous mobility, thinking that if you retrofit, you're having to make a lot of compromises. And so we just finally revealed our vehicle in December of 2020. And now we get to finally talk publicly about some of these safety innovations that have been built in. So we have over 100. The report highlights nine, but Dion, let's start with the one you talked about, which is in our vehicle, we have sensors in the seat, in the buckle, and a camera that knows whether or not that belt is on the front or you're trying to cheat putting it behind you. And mm -hmm. our vehicle will not start your ride until you're buckled in correctly. This is the Highlander, right? No, that's what I say. You, you got to go to zooks.com because ah. now we have a new vehicle. It's got carriage seating, so it's two people looking at two people. Um, I apologize, but it's sort of like a green toaster when you look at it, but it's got sliding doors. Um, Khalid just did a new normal video and it's in that video in the first 45 seconds, if you want to see it like in the real world. Um, but go to the website cause it's a totally new vehicle designed from the ground up. So we can actually build these safety innovations into the vehicle design. And it sounds like it's been built from ground up to be autonomous. So you guys, is that one of the reasons why you have people facing each other? Because now they can actually talk and engage and do things? It's built for riders, not drivers. The cars mm. you're in today are built for someone in that left seat to drive. So 
blank sheet. If you don't have a steering wheel and brake pedals, etc., how would you create? We're going retro, if you will, back to the carriage seating. So it's made for you, the rider, not the driver. And and by the way, I, we'll go into it. I hope even just for a moment. But the safety innovations range from preventive, like we were just talking. So there's greater driving control, um, such as being able to stop shorter and more precision steering. We're bi-directional, there's no front or back, um, up to no single point of failure, which means a lot of redundancy. And Dion, I have some Freezing. Yep. Oh, you're back. I'm back. I hope so. We lost uh, Ray as well. I think we might have interrupted the stream. I think we're still live. Um, uh, uh, and, and you dropped out for me too. But Mark, can you can you walk us through some of those? Uh, you know, you had those nine safety innovations out of a hundred. Were those the nine most important ones you had, or uh, can you blow our mind with some of the things that 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 are in your car? Yeah, we have um, independent braking and active air suspension which basically gives us better traction with our wheels. And that means we have a shorter stopping distance. So obvious for safety, right? Which is you have more time to maneuver and in a pinch, something happens, you can stop faster. Um, we've got actually um, four wheel steering, doesn't exist on cars today. Um, and it means you have more control for power, speed, direction in each one of the wheels. That means we can literally have accuracy in our steering down to centimeters. Wow. Okay? And it's just, that, it's not available today. And the other one, which I talk about getting your head around it, our vehicle is bi-directional. There is no front or back because it's symmetrical. When it pulls into a parking place, it pulls out going forward again. So that means no more U-turns, no more three-point turns. And again, when you think about maneuvering in a city, huge, with right? You're no longer making that U-turn with cars coming at you, right? So bi-directional maneuverability in the city is just sort of mind-blowing. And then another category has to do with redundancy where we've kind of got two or more of everything, powertrains, batteries, monitoring systems for all the safety elements within the vehicle. Um, like I say, we have over a hundred, but the nine that are here are enough to, as you just said, blow your mind when you look at them. Let, let me put that up there so people can see it, right? Up here on the upper right, you can see it, right? It is, uh, yeah, there's no front or back. It's bi-directional. So very, very cool. Yep. So, but yeah, so, wow. So, so we're seeing these types of safeties and, and innovation capabilities here. Um, you know, this is a prototype. This is probably something that everybody else should be building on top. Do you see this as a platform in the future uh, for people to use? Um, do you see it more than that as as kind of an entire network that can be activated if everybody's using the same platform? Like, what's, where's your vision? Where do you want to take this? So first of all, thanks for bringing that up because this is actually the vehicle that's going into public service in the coming years. And so when we're on public roads in a city, being a robo-taxi, you're looking at the vehicle, okay? So um, this is already built. It's being crash-tested for public roads. Wow. Um, and so what you're seeing is reality. It's not like a show car that doesn't drive. This is real, and it's on tracks and private roads already being tested so we can, you know, initiate it within a city. So, so at our conference in Half Moon Bay at the Ritz, we could actually potentially demo this and have people check it out, right? That's so, I mean, you're, you're road ready, you're certified, right? You've got all the, you know, certifications behind this. So, so it's not certified yet for public roads. That'll okay. come in the, in the next year as we get ready to actually start service in a city. 
but we're up to literally, and it goes, by the way, not just 25 in a city, but it can travel up to 75 miles per hour. So, you know, we can, it's already being tested on tracks and like I say, crash tests, et cetera. But the final certification comes just before you can put it on the public road. Okay. Now, but you'll now, get commercial light duty AV testing. So. Yep. Exactly. Got it. And does the vehicle drive manually at all or is it entirely automated? We have, it was built for autonomy. So there's no <laughs> steering wheel, no brake pedals. It's for you, the rider. You get in on your own or with other folks or a ride share if you want. Um, but it is built for you. Does right, it come well, with a pillow? This is, gonna, is there a <laughs> brake pedal? I mean, I, I guess the, the, the question a lot of people are going to have, because as you know, you know uh, the, it some of your competitors uh, have uh, uh, what they call full, full self-driving. Um, and uh, they're they're getting closer and closer. But the, when, when that's on and there's accidents, that's getting a, a, an outsized uh, visibility in the press, I think. And so I was wondering, can you walk through for us what, uh, the general public needs to know about autonomous vehicle safety. Uh, I, yeah. I'm, I'm not sure everyone's 100% clear that it's probably a lot safer than what they're trying to do themselves. Absolutely. And uh, what a great question, because I always point out that the biggest thing coming is trust. Um, and, and you were talking about it right earlier, right? Everybody, they're the best driver. Why would they give that up to somebody else or a machine? Um, so there are three things that are going to build trust that people should look for data that literally show that what you're going to get into is safe okay the second is transparency you got to make sure you have access to that data so mm -hmm. it's proving that that vehicle is safe and three is experience and that's the biggest problem we have as you were just saying it's like we could bring a demo down to half moon bay but that's for a small group of people when we start getting a lot of people having experience in cities that's when they're going to be like bring the pillow I'm going to take my nap. I'm going to go on the tablet, right? It's right. just like no sweat. So it's going to take data so we know they're safe, transparency to that data, and then experience. You get in, and I got to tell you, every demo I've been in with people, in about 30 seconds, they forget that nobody's got their hands on the wheel. Wow. Or that hey, we got some great, some, quest we have some great questions from the audience here. I mean, uh, one of them is, uh, is it electric uh, from Leah? Uh, and uh, I've got another question coming through as well. Uh, the question was really, um, oh, Sarbjeet says, wanting he's, we need a chief security innovation officer, <laughs> which is on the software side. Uh, but, but what's interesting is, is it electric? And, and what are the implications for people who depend on driving to make a living? And then will we need insurers and underwriters anymore? I think that's the other question that just came in through here as well. Yeah, so, so it's all electric. Um, and that's why we're going after safety, sustainability, and a more enjoyable ride for you the rider in congested cities, okay? Um, are we gonna need insurance? Yeah. Um, you know, one of the things I point out, everybody, you haven't asked the question, so let me preempt it. When are they coming? Okay, well, they're gonna be on the roads in the next year or two, but before anybody can go out to their corner and use their app to get it, that's 20 or 30 years globally, right? Wow. And so to your point, you know, even if Zooks were perfect, never have a crash, we're still gonna be on the road with people hands on their wheels, those other 94% of crashes, right? Um, the level two, level three, et cetera. So insurance is gonna be around for a long time, just like cars or horses gonna be around for a long time um, as we make this transition that'll probably be over 20 or 30 years. 
Wow, this is very, very impressive. We're definitely seeing, you know, a big revolution coming here, um, especially when we think about tier two, tier three cities, um, the hub and spoke models, the exuburbs, right? You're going to make the exuburbs possible uh, as, as that's happening. We're here with Mark Rosekind, Chief Safety Innovation Officer at Zooks, um, fellow Hopkins Bloomberg Blue Jay. Woo-hoo. Uh, actually, if you didn't know, I got my MPH there. Um, but anyways, <laughs> thank you so much for being on the show. Um, we definitely would love to uh, catch you up uh, at our event, October 25th through 28th. So hold that on your dates. It's something fun that we'd love to showcase, and we'll follow up with you afterwards. But thank you so much for uh, being on here today. Thanks, Mark. Thank you. That is wild, Diane. That is amazing. <laughs> The whole world is about to change. I don't think people are ready for it. I know. We're going from autonomous driving to autonomous remote work and software. Uh, we've got TJ Jang here from AvPoint. Welcome to the show. Um, before we do that, do a quick introduction. But he basically oversees product strategy and business development for AvPoint's global business and is one of the main architects guiding AvPoint's revolution and evolution to become a collaboration enabler. Uh, one of Dion's favorite topics, you know, talking about what's happening as, as well. Um, you've been a recipient of the ENY Entrepreneur of the Year Award in New Jersey in 2010. And of course, more importantly, you are one of the pioneers in the uh, software and technology sector in the DC and DMV area. So welcome to the show. Congratulations uh, on a big event. So thank you. Thank you, Ray. Uh, thank you, Dion. Yeah, pleasure to be on the show. Yeah, so TJ, congratulations on the, the public listing there after yeah. the journey. So I was wondering, kick things off for us, uh, uh, get our heads around about how AppPoint got started, um, you know, the business problems you were solving for, um, you know, what, what was the genesis and, and, and uh, give us some key insights about, uh, about what happened. Yeah, AppPoint began 20 years ago in a public library in New Jersey. <laughs> I grew up in D.C., uh, Bethesda, Maryland, uh, so that's why we talk about DMV a bit. Uh, my co-founder Kai and I uh, built a, uh, started building a backup solution for Microsoft Exchange. We quickly turned to our attention to SharePoint. That was a solid bet, uh, given that SharePoint has become uh, the backbone of Microsoft Digital Collaboration product as they continue to grow. So now today, we're, <laughs> uh, today we're the largest SaaS data management uh, solution provider for Microsoft 365 and count over 25% of the Fortune 500 as our customers. And we enable organizations to collaborate with confidence, whether that's protecting their data through governance and backup or help to migrate data from Slack to Teams, for example. Uh, we specialize in Microsoft ecosystem, but we're multi-cloud uh, with capabilities for Google Workspace as well as Salesforce. Got it. Whitman or Johnson or Montgomery? No, I'm just kidding. Walt Whitman. Walt Whitman, Walt Whitman. Ah, I see. <laughs> Here we go. Yeah. But, uh, but hey, you know, but, but this is interesting, right? I mean, you've been in the middle of the world's biggest experiment in remote work. You've been at the front row seat. You've seen what's been going on. Uh, we're yeah. all debating. Like, this is one of like, you know, Diane's like research coverage areas on the future of work. What's going to happen? And, and the question is like, what stays the same? Like what remains? Like I, I'm in conversations where people are like, you know, we're going to get back to normal and we could do whatever we were doing before i want my two-hour commute right but yeah. other people are like oh my god like I, I really enjoyed working from home like i didn't have to you know deal with weird co-workers right i mean there's the introvert extrovert battle going on as well so, so what do you think i mean put on your prognostication hat you know design the future where do you see us right now and where do we so, go in the future? Yeah. 
Yeah, so initially company had to move to cloud uh, very, very quickly, right? Just to keep the lights on, it's by necessity. Uh, so in fact, actually Microsoft CEO uh, famously said, Sachin Nadella famously mentioned that two year worth of digital transformation happened compressed down to two months, right? We've seen that happen. So, but even now as we return to office, hybrid work is here to stay. For example, in their most recent uh, Q4, their Q4 most recent quarter, Microsoft earnings, they announced nearly 250 million monthly Teams users. Remember, they were just 20 million back in 2019. Yeah, so it's yeah. a massive increase. And Gartner research also suggests that even as companies go back to offices, digital collaboration will increase. So companies will have to change the way they protect their data in order to exist in the digital age. So too many companies rush to the cloud without deploying proper governance. In fact, we actually also conducted a survey and research amongst our customer and find that 75% of companies deploy Microsoft Teams without proper governance or security policy in place, mm -hmm. leaving them vulnerable to external threats. So at that point, we offer collaboration security technology to help businesses swiftly execute, backup governance, apply specific policy insight, uh, with one SaaS platform. So, so uh, you know, what's interesting is, you know, we've been tracking organizations' um, a journey to the cloud for 10 years now. And, you know, we, we see what the, the big cloud providers are, are, are doing in terms of, you know, they, we call them hyperscalers now. They're enormous. But only like 15% of actual applications globally are out in the cloud. So we have a long journey yet, in, in another five years. Um, and so, you know, organizations are making that shift to the cloud, whether it's Teams or Office 365, uh, which, you know, we're seeing, you know, uh, Microsoft is getting so many enterprise-wide wins, uh, which has to be a real boon to the, the business. But what are you guys seeing? They're, you know, they're making these big moves and they're leaving themselves exposed because they're, they're in such a hurry to get there. But what's the catalyst that you yeah. see, or catalysts, actually, I think, that cause organizations to, to, to make that leap? <laughs> well, there's been, uh, I think there's been a cartoon that floats around, right? The biggest catalyst uh, for digital transformation, it's a uh, necessity, which is the COVID-19 pandemic. Mm -hmm. uh, that's that's the biggest catalyst. The last year, for sure. <laughs> right, exactly. It, it, a lot of people were taking their time and be conservative about it, but now it's necessity over the last year and a half. So, but interestingly, many companies within regular industry are still hesitant to shift uh, that's why our point is FedRAMP certified, where IRAP certified, ISO, uh, SOC 2, for example. And all of these certifications ensure that we're providing the utmost security to customers so they can feel confident, right, using SaaS technology for uh, to propel their digital transformation. So even of the companies who have shifted to cloud, many organizations are not leveraging their digital collaboration tool to the fullest. So up till last year, many were still just using video conference for chats, but would lock down Teams workspace creation and lose out all the rich contextual file collaboration. It was practically the equivalent of having a Ferrari with a Corolla engine, right? We were just talking about cars. <laughs> so now that Microsoft provides more governance tools, and of course, external vendor like AppPoint exists to supplement their native offerings, organization can better manage Teams and Office 365. So it's all about optimizing uh, customer use by tailoring controls, templates, governance for different departments and manage external sharing and guest users. So as I mentioned before, shifting to cloud is one piece of the puzzle. So now companies really need to ensure that digital collaboration is productive, uh, compliant and also secure. Well, and, and the data is moved outside the organization. This is what's happening is, is, is organizations that go to the cloud saying, well, now my most valuable asset, my single most valuable thing that I have, I'm pulling it out of my company. I'm going to put it out there on Microsoft or, or some, some of the other clouds out there. 
Uh, yeah. and, and do you give them that safety net to really so they feel completely confident in, in making that move? Is, is, is that really the, the, the value add here for you guys? Yeah, it's the safety net. There's governance controls to make sure how people are sharing. And also, very importantly, Garner has been talking about this for a long time. Even if you go with the big um, cloud platform providers, the Google, the Microsoft, AWS of the world, um, you have to also think about having segregated and secure SaaS backup restore solutions. Now we see ransomware attack almost every other week. Even White House came out to say, hey, the best way to recover from a ransomware attack is a segregated backup solution so you can recover your data. Because otherwise, if it's within the same platform, the corruption would just spread right across within that same environment. So yeah, we've seen this, um, you know, it's been long time coming. It's continuous education, but obviously now it's top of mind for every businesses. Yeah, you know, we're definitely seeing this shift. And, and one of the interesting things is, you know, the cybersecurity ransomware issue has got everybody much more focused, you know, on, on what's important. Um, and and we're, we're seeing, you know, this whole notion of, you know, the need for cloud engineers, cybersecurity engineers, remote, you know, collaboration kind of, you know, engineers, security uh, systems, right? And and people can't manage that on their own. And that, that's the beauty of actually being able to do it in one centralized governance model, uh, which you guys do well. Uh, one of the industries that's definitely, you know, um, needing a lot of this is, has been higher education. They've been the most uh, ransacked uh, in terms of, you know, the impact of what they've been doing. You guys have been really passionate about this. Uh, what's changed for higher ed? You guys spend a lot of time talking about it. Um, and what is happening in the industry? Ray, I think this is, uh, everyone's been talking about this is the golden age of education technology. Uh, what's changed in higher ed has been the biggest change in the last 100 years, um, especially, you know, college universities that have not changed the way they, they go about teaching are now forced to change, right? So one of the reasons I'm very passionate about higher ed is, you know, I love my experience, uh, education experience. I actually have a, a doctorate in data mining machine learning. And during that period, I was also teaching at the same time. So I love teaching as well. So I, I think the education is industry that needs uh, significant digital transformation change. And as we see, the amount of venture capital that's raised in education space in the last year and a half is unseen for decades. So the pandemic showed that the digital learning experience has been really neglected. Uh, sure, you know, learning management system has been around for a while, but the legacy vendors have created asynchronous communication systems for, for, for students. There's no cohesiveness to it. For example, students may attend a class via Zoom call, uh, but take a test via digital proctoring solution and then talk about it over WhatsApp. You know, that's very, very confusing. So Microsoft team can host, host all these activities. And this is where our edutech uh, solution, you know, what called curricula does. It doesn't just surface a tab in the teams, but also, um, you know, it uses the team's architecture to enable all the digital learning and collaboration among peers and professors online, either remote learning uh, when it's necessary or enrich the classroom. So we actually stitch it all together. The other challenge is anti-cheat, right? We build a solution, Examina, that integrates with teams, but also have sophisticated AI and anti-cheat measures. So we actually build this for institutions here in Singapore. And you know, Singapore in APAC region and globally, it's an education hub, uh, have great reputation. And they're leaning forward uh, to look at how technology can enable this hybrid learning and flip classroom learning uh, to make it the learning experience uh, richer despite uh, the pandemic. Yeah, it's been really interesting to watch. Microsoft Teams has become uh, a candidate for, for the, where, the, where the center of work is going because it has so many deep integrations with so many of your other work systems uh, that you can host files and conversations and hold meetings and do all of the collaboration. 
uh, I did a survey of uh, our digital workplace advisory group. This is uh, 50 of the top digital workplace teams in the world. We did at the beginning of this year. And we asked them just on a whim, you know, uh, how many of you are going to standardize on Microsoft Teams for all collaboration? And I didn't expect a very high number, uh, but 31% came back and said that they're going to do that. Uh, and so yeah. that's really what's interesting. We're seeing education. You guys are doing the exact same thing with education, bringing all the pieces together, saying we now have a center of gravity, a natural place to, to put that. Uh, that's and right. I, I think that uh, you know, where do you think Teams is going to go? Is it really going to eat the world like that? It, it seems like it's it, it's becoming the de facto tool. Teams is definitely the new uh, the new killer app, right? Uh, it's if you think about it, it's Slack plus Zoom plus Box and Dropbox all in one, right? Plus, of course full integration, native integration with Microsoft Office, which is still the collaboration uh, tool of choice. Uh, the only thing that come close to it is, but, but, but distant second, it's Google Workplace, right? Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, there's, there's the, this integrated offering. Now with uh, Windows 365, which Microsoft just announced, where they're streaming essentially Windows OS from, from the cloud, um, every instance will have Teams baked in. So this is how you see now all of a sudden 250 million monthly yep. active Teams users. Just from 140 million, like a few months ago, they announced that number. Um, so Teams is going to be pervasive. It's going to be in every single instance of uh, Windows OS out there. And the fact that it's so natively integrated, and I think Microsoft is very, very smart about this, right? Making their software available on iOS, Android devices, and everything then becomes a pipe back to Microsoft uh, Cloud. And uh, that's that's actually you know a, a very very uh, good strategy. Yeah, no, this is definitely one of the things, right? We're building that signal intelligence. You're building the business graph that, that actually helps people over time, right? All that information, all that connectivity between a stakeholder, whether you're a supplier, a customer, partner, employee, with an object, right? An order or an invoice or an incident, right? Um, that we have attribution, right? In the digital world. I mean, you know exactly what's going to happen. You can learn from that. You can build patterns. You can start building you know, neural nets on the back end uh, to yeah. understand like where you can start getting to automation opportunities. So right. definitely some some interesting stuff going on uh, in that space. Um, let's talk a little bit more about what's next. What's next for AppPoint? Like, what do you guys want to do? Where do you guys want to take, you know, the organization? You know, what's hot? What are some areas that you're exploring, uh, you know, that, that you see are, you know, opportunities, right, in, in the future of work? So... Yeah, I think uh, there's a lot of exciting things uh, for, for us. And now that we're public, we can do things at scale. Our major focus is obviously making sure that we can protect the data and connectivity for businesses and obviously for education. So there's vertical solutions we're looking at uh, continue to build on top of Microsoft Cloud. There's obviously expansion into channel. We announced a major global channel program where we introduce partner DevOps. So that means partner can build their unique IP on top of our um, cloud ecosystem, cloud platform, and on top of Microsoft as well to then offer this managed services unique offering to businesses. And um, so there's that expansion. And also as well now with in this anti-globalization climate, every country want their own cloud. Right. It's kind of like a misnomer. Um, so but, you know, you see that Microsoft's dropping data centers, quote unquote, in country cloud uh, everywhere. And, we, and whenever that happens, we see our business grow. So this happened, for example, in uh, South Korea. It's happening in UAE. Um, so truly, uh, there is uh, this global footprint is ever expanding. So there's tremendous amount of opportunities around this whole concept of digital collaboration and work. And then there's vertical solutions like education for us to expand into. 
Yeah, it's interesting that uh, you bring up uh, anti-globalization. Uh, one of the big trends I'm seeing is uh, these new collaboration vendors that are getting a footprint because they're not based in the United States. Uh, and mm. and there's this, there, there is this uh, fragmenting of the uh, of the cloud space that's happening, everything from data residency and all the rules yeah. with GDPR. Uh, and, and this is creating a, a, you know, some drag on, on, on organizations' cloud plans. Given your vantage point in the industry and working with one of the very biggest cloud vendors in so many organizations, how is that? How do you see that progressing? How are we going to keep the cloud as appealing as it is today? It's, you know, it used to be one place to keep our data and one place to run everything, uh, and now it's getting more complicated. Uh, so, what are organizations going to do, and how does organizations like Avpoint help with that? Yeah, I think regulation—it's—it's uh, it's just a, a reality of things. But this is where software can come in with uh, automation that you can achieve this data sovereignty, data privacy uh, in flight, right? One of the analogy we talk about, for example, data privacy. Uh, one of my good friends is a uh, head of uh, IAPP, International Association of Privacy oh, yeah. Professional. Yeah, uh, Trevor Hughes. And he had a good, a good analogy. So when cars first came out, uh, you know, Henry Ford's Model T, it's travel very slowly, but still people get hurt quite a bit, right? Because... And, and over over the dec next decades or so, we have brakes. We, we have better brakes, uh, better airbags, seatbelt. <laughs> now we have fully autonomous vehicles. Actually, cars can go much, much faster, but safer. So just because you're introducing regulations and uh, requirements doesn't necessarily mean that companies are, are working slower or sharing uh, you know, slower. So this is where technology comes in. And this is where we actually make our business to automate all the governance and controls so that enterprises, as they now collaborate in cloud, in hybrid format or cross countries, they, they have this seamless uh, way to share and what's allowed to be shared and be able to still uh, operate at the speed of their business. So these are very, very important things that folks now to start to recognize that there is a lot of nuances to uh, cloud. Cloud is not just one place where everything just happened naturally. Uh, there's still a lot of challenges that come with it. And this is where Appoint can help. You know, great point. I mean, look, can you believe it? The cloud's been around since 1999. It's 21 years and we barely got 20% of the world's workloads there. That's ridiculous, right? It's the slowest adoption of any kind of disruptive technology we've seen in a while. But uh, hey, I want to switch course real quick and talk about your company and, and the sense that you built a startup not in Silicon Valley, not in the normal place. I, th I think you're headquartered, what, Jersey City, actually? Yes, I mean, Jersey. it's 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 an unusual place for uh you know in today's times talk about you know recruiting what's it like what's the tech scene for you right and uh you know how you're getting talent like what, what that talent pipeline looks like and more importantly what, what is that startup community uh looking like where you are well i mean new york actually has a pretty vibrant uh startup community right there's a uh, you know digital alley uh, <laughs> uh in, in manhattan um so i think right now it's really there's talents everywhere um, Amazon talked about moving, uh, have, have, uh, have a location in New York, but then they scrapped that and moved to uh, DMZ, right, where, where I grew up. And we actually have our uh, public sector uh, headquarter in, DM, uh, in Arlington, Virginia. Of course, the biggest buyer in the world, which is United States government's headquarter there. So a lot of tech giants are, are, are have a position there. But I think overall, I mean, the tech scene, the talent uh, has been, uh, you know, large enough to, to be able to kind of accommodate these uh, uh, big players. But there's also opportunity for uh, emerging players like us, now we're public, uh, to attract talent. Uh, the flexibility is key. Uh, ability to create community is key. So for example, we have uh, a diversity and inclusion community called IDEA that have uh, regular forums, 
for you know black excellence uh, lgbt community um and allyship community that actually meet regularly i think it's it's not just about technology but it's also this sense of uh empowerment uh that people today don't just need a job to live they actually want a job that's fulfilling for them so that they can feel that they, they bring a difference uh, to this world. So I think that's very, very important for, for company to continue to attract talent, uh, especially now with hybrid work, people really can work anywhere. It doesn't really matter where they are. Um, and we, we always living on the bleeding edge. Uh, we use technology uh, for all of our work. I mean, I'm, you know, at any one point I'll be anywhere around the world, but I still have uh, connectivity tissues to 14 countries to our workforce. So it's really that allow us to attract talent globally. Wow, that's wonderful. We are here with TJ Jang. He is the CEO of AvPoint. You can follow AvPoint, A-V-P-T underscore TJ. They just went public. Congratulations. Thank you so much for being on the show, sharing your insights on remote work, and of course, being here today, this Friday. So Thank you, Ray. Thank you, Dion. Wow, Diane. We've gone from autonomous enterprises to autonomous vehicles to where we got next here. <laughs> this is going to be even more interesting in terms of what we're thinking about in terms of the world innovation and how people work. So we've got Linda Hill here, co-founder of Paradox Strategies, Harvard Business School professor. She's the Wallace Brett Donham Professor of Business Administration at HBS and chair of the Leadership Initiative. And of course, one of the top experts in the world on leadership, um, a thinker's 50. Um, it's one of the top 10 management thinkers in the world in 2013 and of course an innovation award in 2015 as well and you've written a number of books from the collective genius uh, being the boss imperatives of becoming a great leader but usually using your expertise in research ethnography leadership and management pulling all this stuff together you've got a massive bio so i'm not going to read it all here but more importantly i really want to thank you for being here because we've got some awesome topics to get to and i don't want to miss any of them uh in this period of time that we've got here so i'll pass on the first question to diane go ahead uh, well first uh, linda welcome thanks for being on the show um uh, and so you know Ray and I have talked to uh, hundreds of CIOs and other C-level executives since the pandemic began, trying to get, trying to get in their head about uh, uh, what are they grappling with, what are they facing, what are the challenges uh, that they have to overcome. Um, but I think you've probably got an even better handle on that. I was wondering if you walk the audience through, you know, what are today's leaders worried about right now as a result of the pandemic? Uh, can you give us a, a, a sense of what's on their minds and, and, and what they're facing? Yes, I'd be happy to, and it's really a pleasure to be here. I very much enjoyed the first two segments and all the kinds of interesting uh, innovations that are happening. So just want to put this into context. So I study the connection between leadership and innovation and how do leaders need to behave if, in fact, they want to build organizations that can innovate time and again. So I was doing a series of studies, as I'm always doing, because I'm an organizational anthropologist. And last March, when I started calling leaders and saying, what's on your minds? What one of the leaders said to me is, you know what, Linda, this is like leading through a fog, <laughs> leading through a fog. And what does it yeah. mean to lead when you can't see and you have no vision? And this whole issue of tying leadership to vision and when you can't see and when you actually begin to understand how unpredictable the world is going to be, they're all struggling with what does that mean my role is? And this one leader said to me, you know what? I thought I needed to figure out how to take charge and steer the ship, but when you can't see, you don't, you know, what's the steering business? And mm -hmm. instead, <laughs> I need to figure out how do I hyper empower my people to convince them that there is no such thing as business as usual. 
we all need to be agile. We all need to be innovative problem solvers. And as he said, this is a very different way for me to think because what they're focused on is guess what? We really do need to be agile. And I cannot do it by myself. Now, many leaders already knew that, but they really, really feel it because they can't predict what's what's going to happen. The thing that they're the second thing they're worried about is really the safety and the well-being of their people. Deep concern about the physical and psychological well-being of their people. And what are the right choices to make? You know, should you bring them back to work? Uh, should you stay hybrid? What really does make sense? And then the third thing I think they're really quite worried about is indeed, particularly in the U.S about inclusion. How do we build environments that are more inclusive? Because the expectation now, they've made promises. You know, George Floyd happened, many stood up, made all these promises, and now people are watching to see if they're going to deliver. So I'd say agility, the well-being of their people, and how do we deliver on what we said we're going to do with regard to inclusion? Yeah, no, these are great points. And and one of the things is leadership styles are also changing and leadership requirements are also changing uh, and evolving. And so in terms of prioritizing efforts to be competitive or stay competitive, you know, where are you seeing, you know, some of those efforts focus on and really also what what impacts uh, from the board, right? Have boards already look at things differently as well? Yeah, you know, it's funny. I've actually been on four public boards. And so one of the things I wrote about a little little while ago was boards and innovation. But I've actually been asked to speak to more boards about that. How do they pay attention to and make sure they're friendly, if you will, to innovation? I'd say what's happening with leadership at the moment is if, in fact, it's not so much about vision. Of course, vision matters. If If you have clarity, tell people and let them go that way. But moving from a followership model of leadership to more of a co creation model of leadership really fundamental shift in mindset. And they all get it. And as one leader said to me, you know, I sort of have been trained when I see blood, I stick my finger in it and stop the bleeding. That's exactly the wrong behavior. So I literally see leaders, C-suite leaders, getting coaches to help them look at their language. How often do they ask questions versus make statements, et cetera. So part of it is what I see is, and they're a little fearful about it, is looking at themselves and thinking about, I need to figure out how I'm going to be different if I truly want my organization to be different. Even take take one of the issues that was described earlier, trust and transparency, the kind of transparency that is being expected of leaders today. And they can't help it anyway because of social media, et cetera. Many of them, how, how do I cope with that? Anything I say can be public within seconds. And I got to, I, I, I am feeling, and I think this, I'm going to go to the personal part. They're feeling fairly vulnerable about all of this. Because my rhetoric matters, my behavior matters, and people are putting, there's a higher standard here. And guess what? This is an unbelievably challenging time. And the last thing I want to say about the challenging time, because I really do feel so, so much respect and I feel for the challenges that people face. I was doing some work with leaders at the United Nations, and they said that leaders in the United Nations are used to being concerned about their own safety, given you know, the nature of their work. But they're not used to being concerned about the safety of their families at the same time. Their families are usually elsewhere. But now what you see is I got to work through all of this and I got to do it really worrying not only about my health, but my family's health. And that's that's real personal. So I see on the one hand, going back to priorities, this is about competitiveness, because if you have a leader who cannot take care of him or herself, they're not going to be able to run the organization very well. So you see that side of it. And then on the other part, though, it really is about how do we become more agile, which is really about culture. So, you know, it's interesting to me, just how many articles do you read day in, day out about culture, yep. culture, 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 and how do you create the right culture? Exactly. Yeah, well, it, it often comes from the top, but you make some great points. And, um, you know, 
as we come out, hopefully come out of the pandemic, you know, we, we know that we have, uh, we still have some more events uh, in that regard coming down the pike. Um, you know, if you're a leader, um, and I've been working on things like post-pandemic playbooks for the CIO, right? That's the audience mm -hmm. that, that uh, we work with primarily. Uh, and, and saying, well, you need to have set-asides for more unexpected events in the future. We know that. Our business continuity, continuity plans were never uh, adequate enough. Almost nobody's came back and said, our, we had a business continuity <laughs> plan for a global pandemic that was really effective. Right? No, one, no one's saying that. Right. Uh, so how, you know, we're going to be facing, we seem to be facing an era where we just have more disruption, change, and uncertainty than we've ever had before. And some of it is good and some of it is not good. And we have, you know, cybersecurity incidents and ransomware. There's all these unexpected events that create that fog that you were talking about, Linda. Um, what can leaders do to position their organization? How should they be thinking? I mean, you know, you've talked about being agile, but and, and, and maybe shifting and creating a new, a new culture, much more around nurturing and safety. Um, uh, you know, what, what else can organizations or leaders do to, to prepare for this, this, this level of uncertainty? Yeah. So first of all, I want to say that when we look at leaders who are really good at this, they're described as being the most demanding leader that a person has ever had and the most generous. So there's not, I, I just want to be clear, they're quite demanding. So what we know about the culture, we know a lot about what kind of culture you need to put, be put in place if you want to have an agile organization. One piece of that is you all have to have a sense of shared purpose. Because when you don't really, quote, know the direction you're going in, purpose is really what pulls us all together. If we have a sense of who we are and why we're together, that is what we align around. That's how we align our intentions and our actions. So for sure, what you see is that people are really looking to their leaders to help the work seem meaningful. Because you know what? When you have to innovate, when you have to be adaptive, it's emotionally and intellectually very taxing. So I do a ton of work with people who are in the technology fields because it's one of my loves. And I write with people in that field a lot. And one of the things I help try to have them think about is how do they build the kind of network of relationships they need to lead in their organization? So what, let me back up and say, so what leaders are thinking about is how do I develop leaders, people in my organization, not just the leaders, CIOs in particular, maybe, or the people who are helping with digital transformation because technology is an important enabler of agility, very important. How do I build CIOs and other leaders in the tech space who know how to partner effectively I hate to put it this way, with their partners in the quote business space. I tend not to think of things quite that way. So yeah, one yeah. thing that we know is that the way that most people think about leadership, when you ask them what is leading, they look down and they think about the people who report to them. Leadership mm -hmm. is as much about managing the network relationships. Most of leadership these days that really matters is really exercising influence over those over whom you have no formal authority. But most people don't think about that as being about leadership. They think that's sort of the politics of organizational life. Well, the real action happens on that, those, that horizontal work. And that yeah. is something that's desperately suffering right now with all of these different kinds of technologies. It turns out we're all burned. We might meet with our own team or our own line, but we're not necessarily doing the horizontal work. So all the programs that I run for people who are sort of in the tech space are often about seeing that piece, that horizontal piece, and how do you do that, both with people inside and outside. So one thing that's really critical to have an agile organization is to have people think about, if you will, that network of relationships and building out the ecosystem they need to be effective. That's a different mindset about what leadership is. Yeah, ecosystem. That's a, 
Yeah, no, I definitely agree with that. And and as you've been doing this, you've been holding a lot of meetings and little roundtables with folks around the world with leaders uh, talking about what's next. Uh, and, you know, you, you've definitely, I mean, I think every guest here has talked about the acceleration of digital transformation by the pandemic and what's been going on. Um, what I really want to know is what are the key findings from the roundtables? Is there geographical differences? Is there any kind of like, you know, significant by industries, like people are looking at it differently, you know, and well, tie into your ethnographer roots. Uh, you know, are there other longitudinal patterns that we're missing here that we might not have seen? So. And I should, I should tell you, we've also done some survey work to, you know, to be supportive of the roundtables. So I would say there are some regional differences that we're beginning to see. And actually, it looks like Asia is ahead of the West, mostly wow. because more of Asia is mobile already. Right? Mm -hmm. They've already moved from the internet to, mo to the mobile phone, right? So fundamentally, what we see is they seem to be ahead in that regard. So, because that's where, where it's all going. So I would say that's one regional difference we see. The other thing that is interesting to see, and we've looked at, you know, obviously Asia is huge. So when you talk to the Japanese executives versus the Southeast Asian versus the ones in mainland China, one of the things that they all do recognize is most leaders, and this may be more true even in the West, are not digital natives. They're no. older. And so there's a generation there that, frankly, is not all that comfortable and, it, and they don't think and see like digital natives. So we see some interesting sorts of reverse mentoring happening. One China company, they have a 22-year-old who sits on the C-suite with them to just have them think about things. Another wow. leader in Abu Dhabi, because he wanted to make sure they did things differently and broke frame, put young people on, this, on the committees so that they would ask those so-called, you know, stupid questions that the beginner, the person with the beginner's eye asked because they'd never seen an epidemic or whatever. So I see one thing that's happening as a result of digital is that they're understanding a lot of the leaders that, you know what, I don't really get all of this or know all of this. So how do I get exposed to it? So you see them understanding why they need to collaborate with or, go, you know, deep, go down into the organization and get people who are younger. So lots of talk that digital transformation, how do you use all the talent of all the different generations you actually have? Because it's not like you want, you're not going to turn it over to the digital natives, but you've got to figure out how to collaborate with them. The other thing, the main thing that really surprised me, frankly, was they don't, and this may be, and, and some of the people we've studied are in the digital roles or the tech roles or whatever it is. It turns out that what's really hard is not the technical choices. It's actually getting people to work differently and, and in fact, utilize the data and utilize the digital tools. So when you think about data, that is about power because information is power. So when oh, yeah. you tell someone who's very experienced, now you know, use the data, it's like, wait a minute, what does my experience count for? What's going on here? How about my expertise? So we find that in organizations that really say we're going to be data informed in our decision making, not data driven, they get less resistance. Because again, you have to think about the implementation of all of this and how mm -hmm. people will experience it. The other thing we're seeing, and I wouldn't, wouldn't surprise you all, is if you provide visual tools to help people be able to look at patterns with data so that you even the playing field so they don't have to simply deal with the digital people who know how to read the stuff, again, you get more embracing of the technology. So what we've been focusing on is so not so much the digital strategy, which is very important and all that, but what they tell us is hard is implementing it, getting people to yeah. actually use the stuff, right? And you've invested millions and, and they're not using it. So how do you how do you help them learn how to work exactly. in new ways to use those data? That's what that's what the the main message I would say has been. And then again, as I said, there really are these these differences in um, 
the parts of the world about how far ahead and what are the actual specific kinds of things they're trying to get done. Yeah, well, execution is the hard part with things like analytics. You can get swamped with data and, and you, don't know, you don't have any way to action it uh, quickly enough. Uh, but yeah. Linda, I love what you were saying about uh, you know, with leaders getting trying to get more tech savvy and, and getting more involved with uh, uh, the younger people in their organization. And I've seen just that same thing happening in Europe, especially where they're, they're not very tech savvy uh, European mm -hmm. uh, corporate leadership. Uh, but uh, organizations like uh, uh, Bayer have been, uh, you know, the big pharmaceutical company have been doing, uh, have been creating reverse mentoring programs where they bring the young up and comers in the organization and they spend time with the CEO and the whole, and even the whole board. Uh, and they show them the TikTok videos that they're watching and how to use Twitch and, and giving them a completely different mindset. And it's really accelerating their digital transformation efforts. So I, I totally agree with what you're saying there. That we're, there, there, there's a two-way flow of information that needs to happen for these types of things. Yeah. Uh, but getting getting back to some of the things you were saying around agility and culture, those are things that that, that, that we have to have or things that we have to do. Uh, but increasingly, it really seems like there's much more of a focus on driving those things towards uh, a purpose, towards you know purpose-driven leadership, uh, uh, a mission orientation. Uh, can you walk us through why that is uh, becoming talked about so much more recently? Yeah, as one piece of it, as I said before, is I think, well, there's there are a number of reasons. One is it turns out that when we studied innovation and when we, we wrote a book called Collective Genius, what we and the whole point of Collective Genius is that really is about the collective activity. Most innovation is the result of people collaborating who have different points of view and different expertise. And you're going to have to take risks as you do, as you all know, discovery driven learning. It turns out that all of that is hard to do emotionally and intellectually, particularly when you're trying to do breakthrough work. So why do you bother? Why should I take these risks? As one leader said to me, we have no fail fast career here in my company, but they want me to take that risk. Well, I'm only going to take that risk if the work is meaningful, if the purpose and the impact we're going to have is truly going to make a difference in, in the lives of people that I care about. So I think that it really is that that's that's why people will do it. Otherwise, I'm like, you know, I'm going to rest, but I'm sitting back and doing what I need to do and I'm going to stay secure because we always forget one of the people I've had the privilege of, of studying for a while is Ed Catmull at Pixar. He's oh, the one who wow. talked to me about just how hard it is when you're really trying to do something new and how hard it is to find friends when you're doing something new. Now, everyone who watches your show may say, you know, I like the new, I'm looking for disruption. But when people go back to ask us to disrupt, we're all kind of human. We wonder really why. And so if it yep. doesn't matter, why am I doing it? I, I'm not going to do, I'm not going to take the effort. The other thing is there are generational differences and we do research on, you know, what does talent want around the world? And it turns out no matter what country you go to, people want to know they're working for an organization that will develop them, that will let them, will put them in a position to have impact on a purpose they really care about. It doesn't matter where they are in the world. It particularly if they're sort of Gen, Gen Z or early millennials. So I think that if you can't speak that, then people don't want to work with you. The most talented people, they don't want to have, they don't want to have any parts in, of, of that company. And actually company reputation looks like it's becoming ever more important. And people yeah. are embarrassed to work at certain companies, right? Very so they're not, you, yeah, exactly. Yeah, you can't pay them. It's, it's interesting. I, I think we have to get out of this mindset. If you pay them enough, they'll stay. No, they may stay, but their brains and their hearts won't be there. And if you're trying to innovate and stay ahead of the curve, they're not engaged enough to do they're that for you. Engaged. Yeah, they're not going to be engaged. Hey, now one of these interesting companies we were talking about uh, earlier um, before we got up was a company I was doing something with uh, avatars and oh, you know, yes, something that yeah. you and I expected uh, out in Japan. Want to share a little bit about that? So if you yes. can. 
Yeah, so one of the things, our new book is really about how you scale innovation and take on really big um, challenges and opportunities. And so one of the organizations that I happened to run across because I was doing some work in Japan was an organization called Avatar Inn, a company. And Avatar Inn is, a, is an organization where they're gonna teleport our consciousness. They discovered we can't teleport our mass for probably about 90 years. But these two engineers who were working in an A out by the airport had this idea that why can't we democratize resources? It's a mobility problem. We need to do it without putting roads and things in place. So they begin to talk about it. They actually got made their way to see the CEO of ANA and described to him, if you can imagine, we're we're thinking of going into the teleportation business. Would ANA like to do that? Uh, but it's going to be consciousness, not not mass, because we've talked to the quantum physicists. And the the CEO said, "I'm very intrigued. You mean like Star Trek?" And they now exist. I, they have actually their MVP is up right now. There's a launch if you go to Avatar Inn. Got to know a little Japanese to register. They're actually providing summer camps. And what it wow. is is it's really basically they want to build based on the fact that ANA knows logistics. They know global logistics, right? This is this is the capability. They're going to build a global internet that is mobile, real time, and secure. So that we can send over our essence, we can have an avatar of ourselves to go do whatever we want to do. If in fact that company, that business, um, that country has access to one of these new me robots that will allow you to send your avatar over. So I encourage all of you to go and look this up. But this is because going back to framing, ANA is an airline. No, we're in the mobility business. Yep. So why shouldn't we do this? And they've put. Um, you know, well, millions and millions, at least $25 million into this already. They've been working with XPRIZE. They've been working with JAXA, which is the Japanese space station. They have one of their avatars up in on the International Space Station. They have them in hospitals. Grandparents are calling and saying, I, I, I can't see my grandchild. Can I have access to one of your robots? Children get it right away. It's wow. so easy. So I think that this is the next this is the next uh, phase, next kind of mobility where we just uh, they, they're doing it. In fact, as as you might imagine, part of it is, can you get expertise of a doctor or something to a village or to, frankly, a poor community in a city in a very well to do country? So it's but they're driven by purpose. Let this be real clear in the choices. So what they told me the other day is, you know, everybody wants us to go 5G, 6G, 7G, 8G. No, we need to do it to 2G. If we don't do it on 2G, it won't be everybody in the world won't have access to it. So it's back yeah. to access. So they are using the X Prize to try to get people to focus on developing the kinds of technologies that are for 2G that we actually can therefore make this um, really a democratic kind of way of getting access to these these um, these general purpose avatars. Now it turns out, and one of the things that I do want to mention here is that many businesses that are trying to take on these big, big problems or opportunities have to work with government. So the other piece that we all need to do, I think leaders are seeing, even you ha always have to partner, you don't have all the capabilities. So going back to that horizontal, you've got to figure out, map out who are the partners we need to have to take this on. And for a lot of what we're looking at without government, uh, you know, whatever it is, you actually can't get this stuff done. And being more proactive and trying to work with government, not in an inappropriate way, to set the stage for certain new technologies to really be again secure. Ecosystems are the, are the future, absolutely. Right. So that's the other thing you need. You need leaders that can work across the sectors and know how to build, be those bridgers and translators across. Got it. Public private partnerships, cross industry partnerships, and more importantly, trying to get more people engaged. So we're here with Linda Hill.
co-founder of Paradox Strategies and Harvard Business School professor. Thank you so much for sharing your insights today. You can follow the company Twitter handle at Paradox Strategy. Uh, thank you so much for being on the show, and we'll catch up on the green room. Thank you. Hey, thank you. My pleasure. Wow, Dion. It's uh, super fast. We're done in an hour. It feels like we've gone through a, like 10 minutes. <laughs> so any, any thoughts, observations on your end? So... Well, I mean, you know, we're on the cusp of, I think, another big revolution in, in so many different ways. So, you know, we, uh, transportation and, you know, uh, the mature cloud maturity. And uh, I think, you know, leadership is changing so much. Uh, it's, it's a very exciting time for those that are ready to make those those shifts. Uh, you know, and I think you know, all of us have to get ready for, for a very different world in the next couple of years. Well, it's going to be crazy if you're here on Fridays, 11 p.m., 2 p.m. Eastern, 11 p.m. Pacific, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern. Uh, you're going to have next week, uh, episode 244, uh, Fred Brown, consultant at Deloitte, uh, David Seftel, chief medical officer and CEO of en Enable Biosciences, and of course, Tracy Zimmerman back, president and CEO of Robots and Pencils. So thank you all for following here. Happy Friday, Diane. Thank you for being here on the show with us. And of Thanks, course, thank Ray. you to our Great. awesome guests. All right. Thank you.